My name is Rick Napier, the founder at Real People USA, located in California. And Real People USA performs three functions. The first is that we uh, like to talk about small business ownership. And as a former vice president of a Fortune 500 company, I love talking to people about capitalism and small business ownership. The second function of Real People USA uh, is that we uh, help Republican candidates boost their performance with podcast interviews and a five-point platform of how to win and most importantly, not to lose. And the third function of Real People USA is that we love to have interesting uh, podcast guests who talk about real situations affecting real Americans. So that's the reason why we call the show Real People USA. Today's podcast guest is Melissa Tuman, and she's currently, uh, rep- currently, I'll start that over because I can edit it. Our podcast guest today is Melissa Tuman, and she's currently running to represent California's 33 congressional district. Now, the California uh, 33rd, 33rd congressional district is all the nice areas of, of Southern California that people think about from Malibu all the way down to Palos Verdes. So Melissa represents those beach communities and going inland a little bit from like in Santa Monica all the way down to uh, Redondo Beach, Manhattan Beach, and all the nice areas that people see when they come to California. So Melissa is also a counterterrorism specialist in the propaganda narratives of extremist movements. She holds a an MA in non-proliferation and terrorism from the Middlebury Institute of International Studies. Prior to that, she spent many years as an investigative journalist and documentarian covering Afghanistan and Pakistan, which is quite an amazing uh, uh, work to do, as listeners will find out. Her background as an actress and screenwriter provides her with a keen sense of emotional intelligence and media manipulation. During the 2020 campaign, Melissa worked as an advisor to James P. Bradley in his run to represent California's 33rd district. She is also a paralegal on the Election Integrity Project California. I'll say it again. She is also a paralegal on the Election Integrity Project uh, California versus California Secretary of State lawsuit to clean up Californians to clean up California's election processes. So without further delay, I would love to welcome to the Real People USA podcast, Melissa Tuman. Hello, well, Melissa. Am, how are you doing? Hi, Rick. I, I am a real person. I, I am not <laughs> I, I am not Memorax. Although you know what? will be. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I, I am so excited to interview because after I read your bio and, and, and saw your videos going back to like 2000, I don't want to say 2006 or, or 2010, I said to myself, this is going to be a great interview. Listeners will be in complete enjoyment and fulfillment uh, when you talk about some of the things that you used to do. So or actually still do, I, I'd imagine. So um, so welcome well, to the show. Do you have back. any opening comments? Yeah, well, my my Afghanistan background, which has been dormant for a few years, it was like Afghanistan was stable, things were flourishing. I could move on to other subjects. 
but now that's come back to the fore. Uh, it's, it's on the front burner and um, a lot of people I care about are in harm's way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So my, I have a few questions to ask you and what we love to do on the Real People USA uh, podcast to begin with is for you to uh, just give a little, a little bit more about your background, where you're from, uh, and then I'll ask the first question about why did what issues led you to decide to run for Congress. So please tell our listeners a little about you. So I'm a fifth generation Texas Jew girl. <laughs> Grew up in a small Texas city, Beaumont, um, and went to the University of Texas. But actually, I started my college years at American University in Washington. I had an inclination to study international relations. I just, I wasn't mature enough at 18 to do it. Mm -hmm. So went back to Texas, went to the university in Austin and uh, finished and then went on to, you know, a career as an, as an actress in Texas and in Illinois and then here in, in uh, LA. Um, doing a lot of theater, a lot of comedy, improv, um, before I decided to run, I was producing a comedy series, and it was I, the woman who was hosting the our, my shoot for my comedy show. She looked at me and she said, "Pick an office, Melissa. What are you going to run for? Pick an office." <laughs> and I was like, Bleh? and I'd spent the past year and a half uh, advising James Bradley. So uh, on Ted Lieu and digging up all of his nefarious connections. Uh, so I started out advising him because I knew that he was in bed with the Muslim Brotherhood and I could not have someone who was sympathetic to an agenda to overthrow the Constitution representing me in Congress. So that's why I, um, I just, I looked on the sample ballot, found James Bradley's name, called him up, spent a couple hours on the phone with him, and then I've talked to him every day since then. Um, so this woman who was hosting my comedy shoot was one of his supporters. And she's like, pick an office, what are you gonna run for? And I said, well, I'm the person who knows where all of Ted Lou's bodies are buried, so I guess I should run against Ted Lou, huh? Awesome. Because that's, so that's what I'm doing. That's where I come from. Yeah, um, I, I decided, um, so I took, I took a big turn in the spring of 2001. It was one of those yes moments in your life. You know how there's, there's these moments where we say yes to something and it totally changes the direction of your life. I received one of these email petitions in April of 2001 that said, oh, the Taliban is so bad. Put your name on this petition and send it to 50 of your friends. And I thought, there is not a world where Mullah Omar has a computer, knows how to use it, has an internet connection, received this petition, saw my name and gave a damn. Mm. I want to do something. So I just typed Afghanistan women in my browser, found myself on the website for an organization based in Pakistan, 
Um, they had a page devoted to their founder who started this organization when she was 20. She was assassinated when she was 30. It was a really dramatic story. I wrote them and they said, I want to make a movie about your founder. And they said, great. And that was it. My life was headed in a new direction. Wow. Wow. I was still Be acting then, but after a little while, I couldn't really relate to the theater community. I was just, mm -hmm. <laughs> I was having too many kind of, you know, Jane Bond experiences. Wow. Wow. Before we move on to the Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan type questions, please tell our listeners, because I know they want to know, what is the, the Hollywood community? You know, people who work in the industry, people who work behind the cameras, a lot of those people are your residents or your, your, your voters. How are they feeling right now in this current political climate? Well, I think they're a lot angrier than most people are hearing. I mean, just, just walking down the street, just talking to my neighbors in my apartment building. Some of my neighbors are still, you know, died in the war liberals. Nothing's going to change them. But I am continually surprised by how many people are really dissatisfied and crossing, you know, crossing the Jordan like me, mm -hmm. crossing the aisle. They just look around and go, I can't be a Democrat anymore. I, no, they're destroying my, my town. I live in Santa Monica. We were targeted. A year, a year and a half ago, almost, on May 31st of last year, it was, it was military in its tactical precision. The protests along Ocean Avenue, and then at one o'clock, they dropped down to their knees and blocked the intersection. And at the same moment, all of these cars come tearing into downtown Santa Monica with people armed with ball-peen hammers and explosives. Wow. And they just tore through. Yeah, you know, they really stuck it to the man by torching the little, you know, sake house sushi bar. They stuck it to the man by by terrorizing and, and looting this little crystal shop that's been there forever called Wonders of the World. Or the homeopathic pharmacy. Yeah, the man really suffered when they terrorized the, the homeopathic pharmacy. They were destroying wow. small businesses and good businesses too, because they used explosives to dislodge the ATM machines at the Chase Bank and every bank along Wilshire Boulevard for several blocks, the windows were just smashed. Yeah, I, I, I recall seeing that. My son lives in that area. You know, he lives in, um, in the Brentwood area, not too far from, from where you are. And he was shocked by what he saw you know as a person just graduating from college and i was shocked to see how they were you know terrorizing fairfax santa monica you know all of these mm -hmm. nice areas that, that i used to hang out in when i was working in corporate america so mm -hmm. yeah it's but i i do believe that a lot of people in in that uh west la community they have changed their their political stripes i do agree with that well, it's like one woman said to me in December. Now, remember, these are all 
people who have always identified as liberals and Democrats. She looked at me and she said, look, I'm no fan of Donald Trump, but I have eyes in my head. <laughs> and that's really the attitude around here. All it takes is eyes in your head to notice something's wrong and we need change. We need it desperately. Yep, I agree. So let's move on to some great questions that I have for you because I know you have some great answers. So my first question, and I'll start with the statement, you have literally done thousands of hours of research about Afghanistan, including uh, going to Afghanistan, which I thought was pretty brave to get this firsthand information. Please tell our listeners about your research. Wow. Huh, where to start? So I already told you the story about about the, um, the petition and, and um, not believing Mullah Omar was going to see my petition and give a damn. So what happened after that was I got in touch with an organization called RAWA, the Revolutionary Association of Women of Afghanistan. Now at that point, I was a political neophyte. I had no idea that the word revolutionary was indicative of a Maoist group. I just knew they were feminists. They wanted women's rights for Afghan women. And they had promoted in the beginning a literacy program and such. So I got in touch with them. They sent me stories about the founder and I started to try and, you know, I just, I started reading everything that I could find on, on Afghanistan. Then 9-11 hit and I'm ahead of the curve. But nobody knows who I am, so nobody's newsroom will take my call. So my friend says, why don't you make a documentary? I said, I, haven't, I don't know how to make a documentary. She says, just get a camera and do it. I'm like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I, I got in touch with you know, the people at the, um, that were helping Rawa locally. And they put me in touch with some members of the local Afghan community. I got really lucky because there are, there are lots of Afghans who are here because they were escaping exactly what Afghans are escaping again today. The brutality of the Taliban or originally brutality of the, um, of the Soviets or brutality of the Pakistani Mujahideen faction because basically everything that happens in Afghanistan is the result of Pakistan. It's all about Pakistani aggression. It's a border war. But it took me years to figure that out. That really simple statement. It's a border war because the Pakistanis do they are masters at strategic narratives and keeping that information out of the public consciousness to keep themselves as, oh, they're just poor little Pakistan, which by the way, is twice the size of Texas. Um, wow. Yeah, it's not little. Wow. It's only little compared to India. So it's mm -hmm. about a third the size of India, which is a subcontinent. Right. Um, so, so, yeah, they keep it out of the news media that this is a border war and it's about Pakistan's aggression toward Afghanistan. Um, so getting back to me, I 
I got in touch with um, this family who was living here in LA and their father had been an advisor to the old king, Zaire Shah. That was the, the old king's name. And so the, you know, they were kind of modern Afghans with traditional roots, but they weren't very religious. They weren't, they weren't religious um, Islamic fundamentalists. They were just modern people. Um, and the kids grew up here. Their, their father had come over here in the 1970s and gone to college and so had his brothers and sisters. And I interviewed their father and every time I asked him a probing question, because I was really trying to get down and figure out what was going on, he would say, oh, you should talk to my brother about that. Oh, you should talk to my brother about that. And he kept saying it over and over. And I said, okay, okay, just give me his number. I'll be happy to talk to him. So then a few days later, I sit down with his brother, who schooled me on the history of Afghanistan. And it is not like anything I've been reading. Mm-hmm. It is so clear. And he's telling me that the Mujahideen were working for Pakistan. Now, we had all thought the Mujahideen were the freedom fighters fighting the Russians, right? That's what we were told in the 1980s. But that's not really what it was. It was, they were all Pakistani proxy groups, which is exactly what the Taliban is. It is a proxy force for Pakistan. And Pakistan, and Pakistan never let, yeah, yeah so the, the Pakistanis picked a fight with the Russians, with our help. We helped them pick this fight. We helped them destabilize Afghanistan enough in the 70s that we knew the Russians would come in to put out the fire, and eventually they did, and they were very sorry for it. They knew almost immediately that it was a bad idea. But then we pinned them down there for the next eight years, nine years, pretty much. Yeah, nine years. Yeah, they lost no, no, big I'm time. Huh? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Russian well, army lost big time there in Afghanistan. They did. But I am not of the mind that it was Afghanistan that brought down the Soviet Union. I believe that it was the fundamental flaws of communism that brought down the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Because, well, there was, a, there was a slogan from the uprising in, in um, Poland. They pretend to pay us, so we pretend to work. Oh my goodness. So in 1984, three things happened that like permanently influenced my political economic thinking. I heard that the Chinese, I think it was Deng Xiaoping at that time, were letting farmers sell produce on the side of the road. They were going to allow this tiny bit of enterprise, of private enterprise. I was reading Khrushchev's memoir, and there was a moment when Lenin noticed that the vegetables in the private market looked nicer than the vegetables in the state market. 
and somebody from NPR went to Moscow and they went to a TV repair shop and there were all these people sitting around not working but there were all these TVs there that needed repair and the reporter said why isn't anybody working on the TVs and the guy said they pretend to pay us so we pretend to work and I realized that communism was going to fall of its own accord. It was built on rusted pillars. With no incentive to work harder, people did the least. Mm -hmm. They couldn't get anywhere by working harder. They weren't going to have a better life. So they might as well do the least they could to not get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is the correct. The economy was going to fall apart, and that's what really happened. Some people think Afghanistan accelerated it a little bit. Maybe I can't. Gave people something besides their own lives to complain about. Yeah, I was in the uh, military um, and had been stationed in Germany and had left right before the uh, Brandenburg Wall fell. And that's the border between East Berlin and West Berlin. When Ronald Reagan said, you know, had that speech at the Brandenburg Wall, tear down these walls. I had just left Germany. And I was able to watch it on TV and said, I was there. And I had a chance to go through Checkpoint Charlie, which was the the gateway between, uh, you know, uh, West West Berlin. Berlin. Yes, West and East Berlin and. They would let people go over for four hours and just walk around and you could see the pain and misery in the people's eyes. So that's yeah. that's my input to which you're right. And I'm a e- I'm an econ graduate. So everything you're saying is correct. That communism thing doesn't work. And and what was the phrase you used? They pre- they pretend they pay us and we pretend that we work. They pretend to pay us. So we pretend to work. Oh, my goodness. That's the first time I've ever heard that phrase. That's. That's that's yeah. what's happening in this country, almost. I yeah. mean, we're getting to that point. Yeah, that was like a slogan of the solidarity movement in, in Poland. Mm-hmm. Because they wow. they went on strike. They said, "That's it. We're not we're not putting up with this anymore." Wow. And so here's my next question. Yeah. Okay, so here's the here's the big question that I have, and I know a lot of listeners will like this question. Why was it important for you to go to Afghanistan? Now, that's a bold move, Melissa. You know, I've been writing about the place for years. And I kept trying to get somebody to back me, to back my documentary so I could go there and interview people firsthand. And I couldn't find any honest, but nobody honest was willing to back me. The Russians offered me money. I said, no, thank you. To RT. Al Jazeera offered me money. I said, no, I don't think so. Um, then somebody, I, you know, I never really knew who this third one was. I just knew it was sketchy. And I had somebody telling me these people are, they're financing terrorism. Um, and then in 2013, so this was actually after I'd gotten back from Afghanistan, um, the Pakistanis offered me $5,000 a month cash. I, I just had to go to a a mobile phone store in Venice and pick it up. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> but but basically I financed the the documentary out of my own pocket as a paralegal. Um 
because I just I wasn't willing to take money from any of our enemies mm -hmm. and have them control what I had what I was saying. Um, and I had to go. I just had to go. So in 2012, I went to the Afghan consulate here in LA and applied for a visa. <laughs> and that poor consul general, he was just looking at me like, okay, you know you, you're going to have to wear a, a hijab, right? You're going to have to wear a headscarf. I'm like, I know. You, get, you Okay, you really want to do this? Yes, I'm going. I really want to do this. <laughs> That's a bold move. But I loved it. Oh, I loved it so much. I, it just, I don't know what, it's, an, it's a magical place. And it's, it's funny, there are these, these magical places, they're not really gorgeous. And Kabul is, Kabul is not a beautiful city. It's dusty, it's dry, you know. But I found the same thing with Kabul that I found in Pristina. Um, Kosovo. The people are so nice. They're just, they're just so warm. And the food's really great. Nobody ever tells you, you know, go to Afghanistan cause for the cuisine. It's awesome. Mm -hmm. And the bread, the bread in Kabul is like no, no place else. It, they have these little bread shops like on every block and they're, it's fire roasted. They have these big clay ovens. And they roast the bread on the side of the clay oven. And there's some guy with a hook that pulls it out. And there's a little guy in the window that has these loaves. They're like pizza. They're like pizza bread. And they score it. And you just tear off a slice from the little loaf. Oh my God, they're heavenly. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so let's just yeah, say that, I that, would that, have that, uh, for the food. That uh, <laughs> that uh, that that cobble that you were describing, dusty. That sounds like Bakersfield. Yeah, yeah, the mountains around there, and yet something so magical, I can't explain it. There's just this, mm -hmm. there's this, there's something in the air. Wow. Well, here's my next question. Okay, so, you know, people have heard about Afghanistan and Pakistan. I'm 60, and I've heard about Afghanistan and Pakistan all of my life. Now, why is that region has been such, why, why has that been uh, an area that um, that the U.S. has had some involvement? Russia has had some involvement. China, obviously, has had some involvement. And now they probably have some involvement. Why is that region such a place where everyone wants to get a foothold? Well, it's a strategic crossroads. It, it's, it's, it's the location. So... Historically, Afghanistan was the buffer zone between the the Roman, the Russian Empire and the British Empire. And the mm. British just kept pushing the boundary. They kept pushing and pushing and pushing. They love to say, the Pakistani propagandists love to, say, to tell us that Afghanistan has never been conquered. <laughs> Horse patoot. The Mongols have conquered it. The Persians have conquered it. Alexander the Great conquered it. And the British conquered it. And the British are at fault for what's going on right now. Just like with the Kurds and Iraq, the British divided the Pashtun people. 
And when and they did that, they they drew what's called the Duran Line. It's a 1,600-mile border between what was then British India and Afghanistan. Now, originally, originally the Indus River, which runs down the middle of Pakistan, runs from the Himalayas, the Himalayan mountains, down the middle of Pakistan to the Arabian Sea. Originally, that's the border between Afghanistan and India. But all of Pakistan that's on the west side of that border, including the Pashtun tribal areas and Balochistan, which is sort of like a backwards L. And Balochistan borders, the Balochistan province of Pakistan borders Iran to the west and Afghanistan to the north. And But it's the Pashtun tribal belt that's at issue. That's the real issue. So. Most of the Pashtuns are on the Afghan side of the border, but a lot of them are on the Pakistani side of the border. And the border was drawn so haphazardly, so like they they ignored property lines, they ignored you know logical geographic boundaries. There are places they say where you can eat lunch in Pakistan and go to the loo in Afghanistan. <laughs> it divides people's property lines and stuff. And there are people on the Pakistani side of the border that still consider themselves Afghans. They like to say, I remember when the the King's Summer Palace was in Peshawar. And in 1947, when the British withdrew from India, the Afghans went to the UN and said, we want that half of our country back and instead the British created Pakistan and they created uh. it as a military state because the British the, the British garrison for all of India was based in Lahore which is now in Pakistan in Punjab Pakistan so Pakistan was born a military state and they have this perennial problem of the Pashtuns who don't really want to be Pakistanis. So they tell the world they're afraid the Afghans and the Indians will unite against them in a pincher move that will crush little Pakistan. But the Indians are never aggressive toward Pakistan and neither are the Afghans. Well, that's not quite true. There was there was a period in the 1950s when the Afghans were being aggressive in trying to get that part of their country back. And mm-hmm. that sort of sparked Pakistan's permanent state of aggressiveness. Um, the Pakistanis call it strategic depth. So they say, if India invades, we have to control Afghanistan as a retreat zone. Mm-hmm. But that's not true either. It's just, it's about the divided Pashtun people and their fear that the Pashtuns will demand reunification. So wow. they feel they have to either control Afghanistan or keep it too unstable, too busy putting out fires to demand reunification. Okay, so you explained the, the next question I was going to ask you about why does it seem like Pakistan is controlling Afghanistan? So you just explained that. Right. So here's my uh, here's my last question. 
how are U.S. politicians using Afghanistan and Pakistan for political purposes? Because it seems like, I mean, you know, we were there, you know, 9-11 happened and then, you know, everyone rushed, you know, U.S. military forces uh, rushed to Afghanistan after, you know, well, doing our dirt in, in Iraq. So what's the end well, game here? Well, you got that backwards, actually. You got that backwards. So we went to Afghanistan because the Taliban gave safe harbor to Al-Qaeda. That's Al right. Al-Qaeda committed 9-11. So the only way we could stop Al-Qaeda from doing more, from, you know, get, we had to eliminate their safe harbor. So that's why we took out the Taliban in 2001 but we've always until Trump we've always worked hand in hand with the Pakistanis to um, to try, we were trying to defend and develop Afghanistan but we were relying on the Pakistanis for as a strategic partner in that operation which was a failed proposition from the get-go mm -hmm. and our our political leaders our presidents this past few presidents had all you know they're like well we have to negotiate with the taliban no 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 you can't negotiate with lieutenants they're not in charge you have to negotiate with people in charge that you had to negotiate if you wanted the taliban to knock it off you had to put put the screws to the people in islamabad and pakistan the generals mm -hmm. there were run, are running that show. But as far as American politicians are concerned, I think that it's actually quite the opposite. I don't think they're, they've been using Afghanistan um, for their political game. I think, uh, well, I mean, in a way, but they've been doing it in a way that's detrimental to Afghanistan. They're, they've been using it um, to, to say we need to disengage from Afghanistan. We can't afford it. Or, oh, we're just so war, you know, we're so warlike. America's just, we're just there to, to kill Afghans. Or we're just there to steal Afghanistan's resources. And we were, we were just bungling because we were relying on Pakistan. Um, but even in our bungling, we still did a whole lot of good. But basically, American politicians were using narratives of disengagement regarding Afghanistan, not narratives of not not narratives of, of belligerence. Um, we were there for nation building, and we really did achieve it. It's it's just that we weren't paying the we weren't paying the police. We were helping to back. Afghanistan and paying the police and the military, their military. We weren't paying as much as Pakistanis were. The Pakistanis, oh. I'm sure, were probably being backed by China in this. Yes. Previously, they were being backed by the Saudis. I don't know if the Saudis were still doing it. Um, I need to, I need to do some research on that. But my guess is that that China was putting money in Pakistan's pockets. The Pakistanis have long considered China to be their their BFF. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, yeah. So, 
so it's not our end game to keep the region unstable. It's Pakistan's end game to keep Afghanistan unstable or under its control. And oh, I just saw this thing the other day where the Taliban was announcing now that, you know, the Americans are gone, China will be able to come in and and develop Afghanistan's natural resources in ways they couldn't before, it was just, just hogwash. Because the most valuable natural resource in Afghanistan is the copper mine at Ainak, which is south of Kabul. And a Chinese consortium bought that mine back in 2010. And when I was there in 2012, my guide was a young engineer from the Department of Engineering, Ministry of Engineering. And I said to him one day, you know, a lot of Americans think we're only here to steal Afghanistan's resources. And he just went, it doesn't even work that way. So what happens is a mine comes on the market and we take bids from different, from people from different places to see who gets to, you know, develop the mine. And sometimes it's the Germans and sometimes it's the Americans and then sometimes it's the Chinese. But it was never just America stealing Afghanistan's resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I heard that the, the biggest item there is that lithium. Is that is that what yeah, the biggest I, prize is? Well, I've heard that recently. Now, when I was looking into their into their minerals, I was not looking at at lithium. I looked at copper. I looked at iron. I looked at um, uranium. They have a lot of uranium. Oh, oh. Um, yeah, uh, and they do seem to have, they have a little petroleum and some coal, and and they have some gems too, up in the mountains. Wow. So yeah, they, and, you know, they've got all kinds of minerals and, and a lot of empty space. Well, Melissa, I tell you what, do you want to close us out with, uh, in other words, what, what kind of plans do you have for your congressional race in District 33? Um, well, I, my plan is to win. <laughs> my plan is to help everyone understand that my opponent, Ted Lieu, is not just in bed with the Muslim Brotherhood and helping them to overthrow the Constitution. He has a PAC that's funded by China, and he's been proposing legislation to help North Korea. So, oh, gosh. And he's working hand-in-glove with Berkshire Hathaway to steal this, the gem in the heart of the west side of LA, the, the soldier's home. There's, a, there's 387 acres devoted to our veterans. It was deeded to our veterans in, in 1887 in perpetuity. And there are all these buildings that were built there over the years to house veterans and provide them with services, hospitals, hospital and, and um, all kinds of things to to help them recover from both the physical, emotional, and mental wounds of war. But Ted Lieu and Diane Feinstein in the Senate have been passing legislation to facilitate the theft of that land on behalf of Berkshire Hathaway and a group of, of uh, Brentwood business people. And it's my belief that that the reason that that's the reason that when the riots hit last year and Santa Monica was hit hard and Beverly Hills and West Hollywood were hit hard, but 
Frank Wood was untouched. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. So I think also, yeah. Also, I know that you, you uh, we talked last week, and you were working with the uh, West, you know, uh, West Los Angeles uh, small business owners with a with a with a, an initiative and a project to help these small business owners not practice discrimination with this with this uh, vaccine passport. Oh, please talk yeah. about that. So I'm working really closely with Children's Health Defense, which is Bobby Kennedy's organization. Um, I, so my belief is that I'm running as a Republican, but I really believe that we're in a world beyond labels. Yes, we are. That I agree with we're that. We're in a, you know, I'm an independent Republican. I believe we're in a world where we're we're being we're under severe threat. Our our nation is being stolen from us, and we all have to work together to to overcome the threat. So I'm working with Bobby Kennedy's organization, Children's Health Defense, and we've launched an anti-discrimination campaign where we um, we go to businesses around, uh, well, we started all over Santa Monica, but we're going to be expanding. Um, and we have this, this sign for them to put in their windows that says, we do not discriminate against anyone based on race, creed, gender, um, sex, vaccinated, unvaccinated, masked or unmasked. Anyone who wants to come to our business, who wants to patronize our business is welcome. And we're getting a lot of businesses all over Santa Monica really excited to join this campaign because everybody wants to return to normalcy. That's right. And my son is excited about that, and I will uh, have him give you a call because he that's the area that he lives in. And I told him about you, and he's going to give you a call to see how he can help because he's a foodie. Oh, awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Tell him I'll, I'll email him the, the non-discrimination poster. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've already, I've already sent it to him. How big is that poster, oh, by the way? Oh, it's just eight, by, eight and a half by 11. Okay, great, great. So it's not a regular uh, piece of regular piece of paper yeah it's not it's not like a huge sign so it's not a, a intrusive or anything it just sits there and it probably sits in the window mm-hmm. and yeah we see that without a passport yes one of our local res, res, restaurants put it just above their health department score nice <laughs> i love it i love so, it yeah so reaching reaching hands together that's how how I'm going to, to help my district. And that, that is the, actually the number one thing. My research shows that the small business owners should be the top priority for, for any, you know, uh, Republican or, or, or pro-business uh, candidate. Because without having our small businesses be successful, everything crumbles as was shown during the lockdowns. Yes. And um, it's heartbreaking. We have a 60% vacancy rate in downtown Santa Monica right now. Oh, oh the my gosh. 60% vacancy, yeah. In a community that two years ago 
was one of the top tourist destinations in the world. Oh my goodness. And it's a ghost town. You know, I was telling someone, I was just down in Los Angeles about three years, about not, not three years ago, two, two, three, almost a month ago. And I didn't get a chance to uh, go through Marina del Rey and then through uh, Santa Monica. And I said the next time, because I've heard that it's, that it's, I didn't know it was a 60% vacancy rate, but I heard mm -hmm. that it was not the Santa Monica that I remember just two years ago. Right. Right. That's not. Oh, goodness. And it's not an accident. That's what I'm saying about Brentwood. So they're killing Santa Monica so they can drive traffic to their their fantasy of what this Brent, downtown Brentwood they plan to build, these, these real estate predators, right? <laughs> and I realized well, that like when Feinstein. I saw that, yeah, I, well, see, Ted Lieu, uh, back in July, passed an appropriation to tear down two of the parking garages that serve the Third Street Promenade, which is one of our biggest tourist attractions, mm -hmm. and to replace them with homeless shelters. So basically he wants to increase the crime in downtown Santa Monica and make sure that nobody has a place to park and that nobody wants to come there. Yeah, it, it seems like these guys like Ted Lou and, uh, and and Gavin Newsom, they, they seem like they all they want to turn California into a uh, into like a Cuba where everyone is living in this this imbalanced uh, you know pro uh, socialist pro communist world with where, where the people are dependent upon the government and I'm, I'm and I'm just saying damn it that's not good for for that area that you're in because that's a beautiful area I spent Absolutely. so many weeks and months and I remember when Venice Beach. Even though they had Muscle Beach and it had its thing going on, I just saw a clip of of, uh, of a family that almost had to be um, in, in, in her car. They had to be escorted to their condo by a security firm because there were so many homeless people sitting outside the driveways where these people had their condos. In, in Venice or in Santa Monica? Venice. Yeah, yeah, Venice is... is as a nightmare but but what I realized when I had when I when I saw that that story about Ted Lieu passing that appropriation to tear down the parking garages and I knew about what he was doing at the VA the light went off in my head I'd been asking people for years what is George Soros's endgame why does he keep facilitating the destruction of Europe What's his end game? And people would say, "Oh, he's just evil." And I'm like, "No, no, no, that's not a, that's not a goal. That's not a purpose." And I realized in that moment, the end game is the land. The end game is they're destroying all the great cities of the world mm -hmm. that they can't, they can't get a hold of the Japanese cities. I think, um, but. San Diego, L.A., San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, Chicago, New York, London, Paris. And everybody's moving out. There are vacancy signs on nearly every building in my neighborhood and have been all year. And everybody's moving to Nashville and Dallas and Houston and Orlando and Atlanta. The Los Angeles is just hemorrhaging entertainment business. 
And I realized that's what they're doing. They're, they're pushing everybody out of the most desirable places so they can buy them up for a song. Mm-hmm. And then they own them. And it's this like billionaire class. So basically it's, it's not the, the totalitarian ideologies, the communism and, and the Islamism are just, those are herding tools to control the population. They're establishing a monarchy, a global billionaire monarchy. Yeah, I believe Legal it. Class. Yeah, because you, you, it, it seems like you named the big city that's popular, that was popular 10, 20, 30 years ago. And now those cities are in ruins. Those, those cities are starting to, like you said, hemorrhage. You know, I used to work in Seattle and, and Seattle was a great fun place to, to get away from. I mean, get, get away to, you know, from California. And now mm-hmm. I wouldn't invite. In fact, I wouldn't invite my worst enemy to most California cities. You mentioned San Diego. I was down in San Diego four months ago, uh, getting ready to go across the border to Tijuana. And I recall San Diego was like the, the beautiful, most beautiful city, you wow. know, perfect weather. You know, 70 to 80 degrees all year round. And I was down in San Diego four months ago and it all the buildings were boarded up. Homeless were all oh up and God. down the, the main strip right across the street from from the beach, from the ocean, from, from where the, the cruise ships come in. See, they're, they claim the left, the, the Democrats claim that they want to help the homeless, but they're really just exploiting the homeless. Mm hmm. They use they use them as a way to get money out of Washington and and you know also municipal and state budgets. So they, they their friends line their pockets. What they call the homeless industrial complex. Yes. And meanwhile, there's all these people that are suffering that are living on the street. And yep, and and then the and construction who, industry. Go ahead. Oh, talk about that, please. Well. Last year, the construction lobby in Sacramento was trying to force Santa Monica to build 16,000 more units. And we got them down to 9,000. 9,000 more units in a contained city. We don't have anywhere to grow. We're surrounded by LA. And and we have vacancies everywhere. I mean, this was something that really bothered me about Larry Elder's platform. He was saying that we, you know, we need to just take the reins off the construction industry and let them build, let them build. That's the way to solve the homeless problem. But we have vacancies everywhere. And, and that has, has nothing to do with the amount of housing we have. It has to do with mm-hmm. accessibility, or like who these people are. They, they come from, there are different reasons that people are homeless. So just taking the reins off the construction industry doesn't help anybody. It's just, um, yeah. Well, the good news, uh, just to let you know, up here in Northern California in, in Silicon Valley, we have a brand, we have a, a big initiative for tiny homes. And for people who are listening who may not know what a tiny home is, this is a home about the size of a, a storage, a locker, about like an eight by eight, uh, eight by eight by 10 storage locker. 
I know a lot and of them made from uh, from containers, shipping containers. Yes. Okay. Yes. And 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 that's booming in San Jose and a little south of uh, Google headquarters. And there are so many people, you know, getting the getting. And these 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 uh, tiny homes are running about three hundred thousand dollars a piece. <gasps> yes. Oh my. And they've been glamorized. Yes. Oh, for Melissa. like the last five or six years, they've been just so glamorized. How cute is your tiny home? How stylish! Don't you want to have one? Yes, and part of the, the tiny homes have to go to the homeless, and those people making a miserable hundred and sixty thousand dollars a year at Google, they're, they're buying these tiny homes because they can't afford uh, to live in uh, 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 Sunnyvale or or San Jose or Los Gatos. That's at one hundred and sixty thousand, wow. two hundred thousand dollars a year. So they're buying a, a shipping container. Yes. On wheels. They're buying exactly. a trailer home. Yep. So anyway, Melissa, any closing comments? And please provide your your web your campaign web address. And you are definitely welcome back to the to the uh, Real People USA podcast anytime. Thank you, Rick. Okay, everybody. You know what? I have so much change I want to make. We need we need change in Washington so badly, but I can't do it without your help. I need donations. Please go to tumemforcongress.com. That's T-O-O-M as in Mary, I as in Indiana, M as in Mary, tumem for the number four, Congress, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S.com, tumemforcongress.com. And donate, donate, donate. And you can also read my positions on things like the homeless and how to help the entertainment industry with uh, getting back free speech. What a concept. Yes. <laughs> and I also want to tell listeners that you're listening to a congressperson, a congresswoman who works. I've, I've known of you for about uh, almost a year, connecting with a, a mutual friend in New York. And you work, Melissa. So there's a, I think there's, there's people out there who do not work. That's just my uh, personal opinion, but Melissa, you work and I love it. I believe that the best way to get elected is to act like I already have the job and work it, do it. Just do the work, do the research, get out there. I'm trying to help people be rescued from Afghanistan right now, working with a a new organization called the um, Allied Rescue Coalition and, um, and also with another organization that's called CRAF, uh, the uh, Constitutional Republic Action Force, so that we can have um, candidates who understand the Constitution and really want to preserve it. Absolutely. So anyway, Melissa, thanks for being a guest on the Real People USA podcast, and you have a great evening. Thank you, Rick. You have a great night. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.